0: Coming up next on Passion Struck.
1: What I realized was two things. One is that the CGM is measuring your glucose continually. And the glucose you can essentially think of as the fuel for that metabolic engine. So it's kind of the main energy source for our metabolic system. So by being able to monitor what's happening based off of different ways you're eating, different lifestyle habits, you could see a lot of information from one input. So kind of like the 80-20 rule, if I started to get people to just improve their glucose levels, they started to see all of those benefits start to have that ripple effect. So I realized the metric itself was really powerful as a root cause biometric. And then the second is that feedback loop, that power of real-time data coming at you. Every decision you make, you're going to either get positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement was an amazing and still is an amazing behavior change
0: tool. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice passion struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 360 of passion struck consistently ranked by Apple as the number one alternative health podcast. And thank you to all of you who come back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better and impact the world. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here. Or you simply want to introduce this to a friend or a family member. We now have episode starter packs. These are collections of our fans favorite episodes that we organize into convenient topics that give any new listener a great way to get acclimated to everything we do here on the show. Either go to Spotify or PassionStruck.com slash starter packs to get started. In case you missed it, last week I had on amazing guests. The first was Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, whose groundbreaking research and evidence-based approach have revolutionized the way that we think about muscles and the impact that they have on our lives. In our interview, we discussed Dr. Lyon's brand new book, Forever Strong, a new science-based strategy for aging well, which provides a blueprint for boosting your metabolism, building strength, and extending your life. The second interview was with Simone Stolsoff, author of the brand new book, The Good Enough Job. Instead of treating work as a calling or a dream, we discuss how we can redefine work as a vital part of life rather than our entire existence. Please check both of those episodes out and if you liked either one of them or today's, we would so appreciate it if you gave us a five-star rating and review. These go such a long way, they really do, in bringing more people into the Passion Struck community. I also know we and our guests love to see comments from our listeners. Today, we have an incredible guest, Kara Collier, who's transforming the way we approach nutrition and wellness. As a registered dietitian nutritionist and the co-founder as well as VP of health at NutriSense, Kara's expertise is reshaping the landscape of personalized health, notably recognized as the Forbes 300. 30 recipient, Tara is driven by her passion for harnessing modern technology and expert guidance to empower individuals on their journey towards optimal well-being. In this episode, get ready to shatter the misconceptions that might be holding you back from your health goals. Cara will debunk the myths surrounding weight loss, including the notion that it's all about the calories in versus calories out. She'll also explore the fallacy of focusing solely on insulin and hormone balance as the keto-healthier you. Ever wondered what a continuous glucose monitoring system is and how it can revolutionize your understanding of your body? responses? Kara will unravel the significance of wearing one, helping you uncover how your body reacts to food, exercise, stress, and sleep in a personalized way. Discover why glucose, often preferred as a biomarker, plays a pivotal role in your well-being. Stable glucose levels not only translate to consistent energy levels, but also have the potential to bring about weight loss as a natural consequence. Kara will also dive into the intricate realm of genetic risk factors, unpacking the significance of genes associated with Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease, she'll illuminate the concept that genetic predisposition is only one piece of the puddle. Kara draws a compelling analogy likening genetic risk to a loaded gun with lifestyle habits as the trigger, something you have the power to influence. And if you're curious about optimizing your diet, Kara's insights into the omnivore diet will intrigue you. She'll also guide you through enhancing your body's innate detoxification processes, paving the way for a more vibrant and healthier you. This episode is a treasure trove of wisdom you won't want to miss, so let's dive in and ignite the passion for a healthier life with Kara Collier. Thank you for choosing PassionStruck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am so excited today to welcome Kara Collier to Passion Struck. Welcome, Kara.
1: Thank you. Excited to be here.
0: I was hoping that you could share a little bit about your journey and what led you to become a registered dietitian nutritionist.
1: Yeah. So I've grew up always interested in health and nutrition. I played sports in high school, growing up into college. And I remember a dietitian coming in and talking to us when we were freshmen in high school and just explaining the very basics of sports nutrition, fueling yourself properly, I made a few really minor adjustments to my nutrition and could immediately see the benefit in my physical performance. And I got hooked ever since then, realizing how essential this component of nutrition and lifestyle habits are to just how we function, how well we perform, how well we thrive in life in general. So that led me down the path of becoming a dietitian. And then I started my career as a traditional dietitian, working with sick patients in hospitals, clinical care, healthcare setting. And that's where the disconnect for me really started of what you get into nutrition and health for is to help people, to really see them thrive, to help them make positive changes. But the way our healthcare system is set up right now, we're not really designed to help people thrive in that manner. We're typically more of a sick care system in the sense that a lot of people come in with an acute problem, we give them an acute solution and we send them back home. So what I really was passionate about and what I cared about, I wasn't able to do in the clinical traditional healthcare world really wasn't able to help patients at all. And I was seeing them way too late. So then eventually pivoted and created my own solution to the problem, which I'm sure we can dig into, but took that entrepreneurial turn in order to really see uh, that passion for nutrition and helping people come to fruition.
0: Well, thank you for that. And on the show, we have had a ton of health professionals and the system today in many ways promotes black and white thinking. And I know for myself, there seem to be so many protocols that you have to manage that it really becomes yourself being the general contractor of your own health to navigate this system, putting you in the center because it doesn't appear anyone's looking at the holistic picture. So when it comes to this black and white thinking, could you explain the effects that it has on our overall well-being?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're correct that you really have to be the advocate and the center for putting all the pieces together, asking the tough questions of your healthcare professionals. That's something I would encourage everyone to do. A lot of times we take these recommendations from doctors, specialists at face value, and we just do it. So always questioning, probing, asking follow-up questions, and trying to put all the pieces of the puzzle together but when we think black and white like this, do this, don't do that, this is good, this is bad, especially when we're looking at systems in isolation, then we are missing that bigger picture. If you only go to a specialist to discuss, and let's say you're going to a therapist to discuss mental health issues, but they're not talking about nutrition, and then you go to an endocrinologist to talk about diabetes, and they're not thinking about your mental health, there's all these components that are actually interlinked because we are a complex system, right? We have all these different organ systems that speak to each other. No system in our body functions in isolation, but we treat things in isolation. So when we segment it like that, and we think really black and white, then we're usually missing the bigger picture. And we're usually missing the most important takeaways and how it all connects And the fundamentals. And I think that's why sometimes we can get really stuck on small details, especially in nutrition, as an example. People always want to know well, which supplements should I take? Should I do this exercise fasted or should I eat something beforehand? And while those kind of questions and curiosities are really fun and they are exciting to get in those really n of one nitty gritty details. A lot of times then people are missing the fundamentals. So I always say, don't major in the minors, make sure you're mastering some of those fundamentals first, before we go down these different rabbit holes as well.
0: One of the best analogies that I've heard about how you should look at this system was by Dr. Cynthia Lee, who's a functional medicine doctor. And she said the way that we should approach it is looking at ourselves as a tree and really looking at that entire ecosystem. but the way things happen today, as you were just describing, it tends that different practices look at either branches or leaves that are on the tree without taking into thought the entire tree and its strength and its stamina and its overall health. So I've always thought that is a a great analogy to use when thinking of how you need to look at this holistically compared to the protocols that I mentioned earlier.
1: Absolutely. And similarly, I love that analogy. Not only do we make the mistake of looking at things in isolation versus the whole system, but we also tend to look at what is immediately in front of us rather than the root cause. Let's say a leaf is falling off the tree and we might think there's something wrong with the leaf, but maybe it's probably a deeper issue. Like the seasons are changing, temperatures are changing, not getting enough water. So usually there's this bigger root cause happening, but a lot of times we put a band-aid approach. We tie the leaves on the end of the tree to make them stay, or we're not really thinking about what's happening at the root cause. And I think that's the other major. Major flaw of the way we approach some of these complex conditions and symptoms in our current system.
0: Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at Passionstruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site, it's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. Just go to Indeed.com slash Passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at Passionstruck.com slash deals. Now back to Passionstruck. I want to go into a little bit about genetics because genetics and epigenetics is something that I'm very interested in. I've had a number of people come on the podcast like Kara Fitzgerald, Mark Hyman, Will Cole and others, see McDermott to discuss this. A lot of people believe that genetic risk factors are often considered unchangeable. I don't agree with that. Can you explain the analogy of genetic predisposition? And I've heard you talk about this on other podcasts. but how is it like a loaded gun, and how our habits and lifestyle influence the outcomes?
1: So the analogy I use, as you're mentioning, is that genes load the gun, but your environment and your habits pull the trigger. So you may be at a predisposition for something based off of the genetic hand you are given. We don't get to choose these things in life, but we're given predispositions to different conditions. Maybe you look at your family history and that. of the people in your family have had a heart attack by the age of 60 and have had cardiovascular disease. So you're most likely at a genetic risk for also having cardiovascular disease and probably a higher risk of heart disease um, and heart attacks. But there are very few genes that are deterministic, which means you get this gene, you get the condition. So there's Very few, vast majority are just increasing your risk and then different lifestyle habits or those epigenetic factors. So your environment, your diet, your lifestyle, those are the type of things that might switch those predetermined genes on or off. So there is so much more in our control than people realize. And I actually emphasize to people that the more you have a maybe suboptimal genetic hand that you've been given, the more important it is to really pay attention to those lifestyle habits. Cause you're at a higher risk, but you still have so much in your control to not make sure that's your destiny. I've heard people who are like, well, both my parents got diabetes and it doesn't matter what I eat. I'm going to get diabetes. And it very much does. I can guarantee you that you don't have to be on that same path that your parents were on. If you make the right lifestyle habits to set yourself up for success. And it's good to know those genetic histories because you really want to know what things to pay attention to, what things to be extra diligent about, but don't ever let it discourage you or disempower you from feeling like you are in control of your health, because there's so much more that is actually flexible based off of our lifestyle habits than deterministic, like I was mentioning.
0: I'm so glad you brought up those lifestyle choices because this podcast is all about the power of the micro choices that we make every single day and how those choices wind up either leading to a life of vitality or the opposite direction. And I remember one of my favorite podcast interviews I've done was with my friend Katie Milkman, who's a behavioral scientist at University of Pennsylvania. And the reason she became a behavioral scientist is because she was doing some research on health outcomes. And what she discovered is that two-thirds of people, by the time they become over 50, end up living the rest of their life with two major conditions, if not more. And when she started looking at all the data behind it, what it all showed is that can be completely altered by the lifestyle choices that you make. Or if you decide not to make those lifestyle choices, it can cause those conditions, to increase in magnitude and severity. Is that something that you have seen as well?
1: Absolutely. It's so true. And I really specialize in honing and metabolic health as the core foundation of health. And so metabolic health-related conditions, most commonly we think of type 2 diabetes, but also cardiovascular disease. It's estimated that 80 to 90% of cases of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease are preventable. Um, So maybe I estimate it's probably even higher uh, because I think these are largely lifestyle related, but the vast majority of these chronic health conditions are preventable. We don't have to end up there, but most people do, because like you're saying, it's these micro habits. It's these small habits that stack on each other day after day. And you can either send those habits in that positive flywheel effect where you're stacking positive habits that are going to put you further and further away from ending up with chronic condition, or you can have that positive, that negative flywheel of those small habits that add up that kind of slowly get you there. Because what people realize this, but we don't think about it often is that these conditions take decades to develop. You don't wake up one morning with type 2 diabetes. These are habits that have stacked up on each other for 20, 30, 40 years. And so that also should be really empowering that there's so much in our control. And even if you find it at early indicators of diabetes or pre-diabetes or even what I would consider yellow flags, so those really early warning signs you can start to shift those habits in the other direction and then go back into optimal health state. And so our habits are really determining which direction we go, but it's this wide spectrum that takes decades. It's really about that consistency, the habits day in and day out, behavior change, true behavior change that will direct which way you're falling in that spectrum of
0: health. I was having lunch about a week ago with my friend, Dr. Cyrus Kambada. I'm not sure if it's Cyrus, but he is one of the co-authors of the book Mastering Diabetes. And what he and Robbie discovered is that virtually 99% of type 2 cases are reversible with lifestyle changes, which is just incredible if you think about it. So the statistics indicate that I've looked at that only a small percentage of American adults are metabolically healthy. What do you think are the factors that contribute to metabolic health and how can we work towards achieving a more metabolically healthy body?
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, it's estimated that only 7% of the U.S. population is in metabolically healthy state. I actually estimate it's possibly even lower because the thresholds they're using in that study are standard reference ranges when really we like to look at it from a little bit more of an optimal lens. But either way, right now, the statistics are a little grim, but I'm very optimistic about the way things are changing. And if we really want to focus on not being a part of that 93%, you want to look at four categories. So I always describe it as four legs of a chair, and you really need each of them in order to hold up that foundation well. So one is going to be your nutrition. So your food decisions, which is typically what people think of first. So they think of sugar or they think of processed foods. We can talk about top nutrition tips, but equally important is going to be exercise and fitness level, your sleep quality and quantity each night, and then your stress levels. So this can be both psychological stressors, but also physical stressors like illness, anything that's putting that body in that stress state. So all four of those are areas that you really want to pay attention to and really master those fundamentals in order to have that robust metabolic health.
0: I love that analogy because about 15 years ago, I started working with a career coach and at the time I was a Fortune 50 executive getting completely burned out and told me that I was living my life as if it was a stool that only had one support and that support was the constant grind and although it was bringing me money and other things it wasn't bringing me happiness it wasn't bringing me wellness it wasn't bringing me relationship health etc so he told me instead of building my life like that to actually look at it as a stool with multiple supports and those supports can be anything that a person wants but for me I decided to make them all components of my overall health so it it got into physical health, mental health, emotional health, spiritual health, and relationship health. And that's over the past decade or so how I have tried to live my life. And it makes such a huge difference in not only impacting sleep quality, as you mentioned, but your cognitive ability to perform as well as just feeling so much more alert and just vibrant and how you're carrying out each day. So love uh, that you brought that up.
1: I love that as well. And again, as the benefits of good metabolic health, um, not only are we going to help prevent some of the most common chronic illnesses, so diabetes, cardiovascular disease, also a lot of neurological conditions, kidney disease, hypertension, But as you mentioned, it improves your ability to be your best self each day. So not only does it have this long-term positive outlook, which can be hard for some people to really keep that as the main motivation to prevent diabetes 30 years from now can be really hard in that moment for that to be the main source of your motivation, But by doing these habits that support good metabolic health, we also see that impact in our day-to-day, our energy levels, our cognitive capacity, ability to have strong executive functioning skills, focus, attention, and then also our mood. So a lot of times those swings in our glucose values, that erratic uh, metabolic health can lead to feelings of irritability, crankiness, sometimes anxiety for some people. Hanger, that sleepiness, that post-meal nap feeling. So all of these can be tied uh, to that metabolic health status as well. So you get that immediate benefit of feeling better day-to-day. And then of course, that's going to also contribute towards disease prevention, longevity.
0: Before we leave this topic of genetics, one thing I did want to go into is genetics are linked to Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease risk. Can you discuss specifically what is impacting Alzheimer's and dementia and if there's any way that people can make lifestyle changes to help thwart the onset of those later on in life?
1: great question. And related to the genetic component, many people might be familiar with a gene called ApoE. So this is a lipoprotein. It basically transports lipids from your body to your brain as like that main system. And there's a genetic variant. You can either get a two or three or four from your mom and dad. So you get two of them. And the type four is one that really increases your risk for both cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's. And I happen to have two copies of the four. So this has become a personal strong interest area of mine to really understand that risk factor for Alzheimer's and other neurological conditions and what you can do about it. And again, as we've mentioned, the biggest conclusion I have come to is how much control we have and that you really get to determine this outcome with your lifestyle habits, but With Alzheimer's in general, many people have started to call it type 3 diabetes because there is such that crossover between diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. We're seeing that by the time you get dementia, that you have essentially insulin resistance in the brain. And so there's this clear connection that similar mechanisms that are happening in diabetes are happening in dementia and Alzheimer's. And so it's really a decreased energy availability in the brain because that energy system isn't working well, which can lead to all host of downstream effects like inflammation in the brain, which then leads to the things like tangles and neuro dysregulation within the brain that leads towards those symptoms of Alzheimer's. So those are very connected. And so anything that we do to improve our metabolic health overall is also going to help protect us. Um, from Alzheimer's disease, dementia, whether or not you have a higher genetic risk, um, they're still going to be protectives. Again, we're gonna look at those pillars of what you're eating, how much you're moving in your fitness level, your sleep quality and your stress levels. And all of those things are going to help contribute to that healthy brain functioning, again, day-to-day in that cognitive capacity, but also that long-term protection.
0: And one of the people I'm so glad who has come out in public about His own predisposition to having the OPE4 gene Mm -hmm. has been Chris Hemsworth. And I think it's been so great how he is sharing his story, but also the lifestyle changes he himself is making because of it. But one follow on question I had is I have heard that there is a link between alcohol consumption and it having a greater impact on someone having Alzheimer's or dementia. Do you find that research to be true?
1: I do. So one mechanism at play for those who are at a higher risk um, of dementia, especially if you have the ApoE4, is that there tends to be a Leakier blood brain barrier, basically. So, you're more susceptible to the negative effects of anything that would be considered a toxin, which alcohol is a toxin, whether we want to admit it or not, it is. And so, we are more susceptible to those negative effects if you do have some of this genetic predisposition. But this also um, includes other toxins like your water quality, your air quality, choosing organic produce whenever possible, cosmetics. There's a lot of sources of toxins within our life. So it's really one key pillar um, for that preventative aspect, especially if you're at that genetic predisposition is Analyzing all sources of toxins within your system, minimizing as much as possible. So removing alcohol, if somebody is able and willing to do that and removing some of these other sources of toxins, and then also increasing your ability to naturally detoxify because we're never going to be able to remove them all from our lives. This is sweating, having healthy, regular bowel movements, which means eating plenty of fiber, and then getting a nutrient rich diet. So there's a lot of various plants, especially cruciferous vegetables. So things like cabbage, kale, um, that can help us detoxify a little bit as well.
0: Well, we're going to spend the remainder of the time talking about glucose monitoring and some of the science behind it. But I thought before we jumped into that, it might be nice for the listeners to hear the story behind you co-founding NutriSense and what motivated you to focus on leveraging modern technology to enhance individual health.
1: Yeah, I was working as a dietitian in the hospital, as I mentioned, and I was primarily working in ICUs. So critical care nutrition. And typically you imagine that being something like a car accident, trauma, gunshot wounds. But typically what I was seeing over and over were acute complications of lifestyle related chronic conditions, as we've been talking about. So. If you let your diabetes get out of control for a while, or maybe you never knew you had it because you don't go to the doctor, eventually you might show up in a acute situation where you might need to be put on dialysis or you might need a leg amputation. Or let's say you've let your congestive heart failure go too long. Now, suddenly you're all swollen up and you need to get all of that drained out. So we have people coming in with preventable conditions and preventable acute situations. And after seeing that over and over and really trying to make change from within, I realized that in order to be impactful in the way I wanted to be, I needed to talk to these people 30 years earlier, and I needed to have more powerful solutions that were actually going to be motivating and help create sticky behavior change. So from there, I left and went to a different startup, but was mulling over this problem when I really started to think about the continuous glucose monitor as a tool. So historically, these are prescription devices, medical devices that have been used mostly with type one diabetics, which is the diabetes you usually get in childhood where your body doesn't make any insulin. And so I had used them with my diabetic patients before, but I started to realize that maybe this could be a tool to help solve some of those root cause issues I was seeing in the hospital system so I got some for myself, for my family and friends was putting them on everybody and trying to see what happened. And what I realized was two things. One is that, so the CGM is measuring your glucose continually and the glucose, you can essentially think of as the fuel for that metabolic engine. So it's the main energy source for our metabolic system. So by being able to monitor what's happening based off of different ways you're eating, different lifestyle habits, you could see a lot of information from one input. So like the 80-20 rule, if I started to get people to just improve their glucose levels, they started to see all of those benefits start to have that ripple effect. So I realized the metric itself was really powerful as a root cause biometric. And then the second is that feedback loop, that power of real-time data Coming at you, every decision you make, you're going to either get positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement was an amazing and still is an amazing behavior change tool. So, first, it's about learning the right things to do, but then you have to figure out how to keep doing those things, right? The consistent micro changes, consistent habits is where you really see results. And as a healthcare professional, I'm sure anyone who is in the healthcare space or even coaching space knows that you can tell your client what to do. You can educate them. You can have the best wisdom in the world, but if you can't get them to actually do it consistently, they're not going to see results. So that was the other major takeaway I saw from the CGM is that people were actually sticking to things and seeing results. And that's when I realized there was a lot of power in this device that wasn't being used outside of this kind of very medical setting. So I met my co-founders and we started building the company. So this was about four and a half years ago that we joined forces and and started building. So I come from the nutrition field and my other two co-founders come from both a tech background and a business background. So together we had complementary skill sets to make it happen.
0: Yeah, that's great. So thank you for sharing. And one of my most favorite episodes that I get from listener feedback is when I had Dom D'Agostino on the show who has been wearing a CGM now for a number of years. And he just amazes me because he maintains a constant state of being on a keto diet for longer than anyone I have ever met. And his variations since he's been using the system are so slight because he's been able to really dial everything in. But I remember when CGMs first came on the market, they weren't the most simple thing to use and they could be quite painful. How has the technology evolved over the past four to five years?
1: It's evolved quite a bit. They've gotten smaller cheaper and easier to use and so we imagine that trend is going to keep going and there's actually a new generation of sensors from the main manufacturer being phased out right now it's released in europe and it's coming in the us soon and it's even smaller even easier so the technology has really improved over a short time span so 10 years ago was when they were very first introduced and it was really only medical setting They only lasted, I think, two days at the time, and they were thousands of dollars a piece. And now the average CGM, there's two main manufacturers who create them, um, but the one we use uh, lasts 14 days and they're pretty small and it really, truly is painless. So if anyone has pricked their finger with a glucose meter or gotten their labs drawn for, for any sort of lab draw, that is much more painful than putting on the CGM With the CGM itself, I always describe it as like an easy button, if anyone remembers that reference, but you put it on at home, it's in this little contraption and you put it on the back of your arm and you just push that button and then it's there and you really truly don't feel it because it's just this microfilament that's going just below the surface of the skin. And then you do all all your normal activities with it on. So sleep with it on, work out with it on, and then they last 14 days, you peel it off and then you can put on another one.
0: And can you provide a brief overview of how the CGM works and why it's beneficial to our health?
1: So it works, as I mentioned, you put it on the back of your arm and there's just this small microfilament that goes just below the surface of the skin. And what it's actually measuring is the glucose in your interstitial fluid. So that's just like the fluid in between cells. So it's not even going to the depth of your blood vessels, which is why it's so painless to put it on and you really don't feel it at all while it is on there. And so during that 14 days, it's capturing those glucose values, which are similar and and reflective of what's happening in your blood vessels. Essentially the glucose diffuses from the blood vessels into the interstitial fluid. So they're the same. And then what happens is the device itself can hold up to eight hours of data at a time. And then we have a phone application um, where you just scan the app over the sensor And you get updated real time data. So you could scan it every two minutes and get updated two minutes of data, or you could go eight hours without scanning and it would pull that last eight hours of data. So then what you're left with on the app is seeing basically a 24 7 movie picture of what's happening with your glucose values, which is really interesting and unique because there aren't a lot of things where you get that 24 7 view. So we can get that with our heart rate. We have a lot of heart rate monitors that are easy to wear, Apple Watch, Garmin, et cetera. Uh, You can also do that with HRV, which is a variation of that. But besides those, you don't have a lot of metrics that we can measure continuously like that. And that's part of the reason that the CGM is so valuable is because we know the difference between viewing a movie versus just a picture is a movie tells a thousand words. And so we're going to see all the nuances of what's happening and you're going to learn a lot more in that two weeks of data. It would take you probably months of pricking your finger, getting those snapshots of glucose values in time to get the type of information that you could get in just two weeks when you're seeing it continuously, because you can see right then and there. Oh, I had a really large glucose response to that meal tomorrow. I'm going to try that same breakfast, but I'm going to swap toast for berries and see what happens. And then you make that change. And then the next day you see what happens in real time. And then let's say it's, it's much better. It's completely normal. So now, you know, okay, that change now resulted in a better meal choice for me, or maybe it's still a little high, but much better. So now you try swapping something else. So you can make these quick iterations with your meals and get your glucose values into normal ranges pretty quickly, especially at mealtime because of that continuous feedback loop. And that's really why it's so helpful for both creating the habits that you want to stick to, but then also creating that motivation um, to keep going because now people know with real data that thing works or that thing is not so good for me, or this is a better decision than that. Rather than that information just coming from a professional or a blog or a podcast, when people see it, real data from their body, it has a new level of significance to them, which is then much easier to actually find that motivating. And we know that once we've built that kind of intrinsic internal motivation, we're much more likely to actually stick to something and really do it.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And I've got two great episodes coming up all about habit change, one with BJ Fogg, who basically wrote the book on it, and the other one with Dr. Judd Brewer, which is also a great discussion on this. I wanted to ask you a follow up on that. In your experience, how does the mind body connection become more apparent with the data backed insights from CGMs?
1: This is a huge insight that a lot of our customers will actually say to us, but they didn't expect. experience when we have that data to now match with how we're feeling subjectively you can really enhance that mind body experience as you're mentioning so a lot of times some of the daily symptoms or feelings or moods we're having are actually connected to our glucose levels But we don't realize that. And then there's also the problem that normal is normal. So if every single day you're feeling a little bit of brain fog, difficulty focusing, maybe some irritability, but that's how you feel every day, it just seems like that's normal. And you don't know that there's another way to feel And then often we'll see that those symptoms are actually tied very closely to what your glucose levels are doing. And then you start to improve them. And now suddenly you realize that there's a new normal, a new way to feel that you didn't even realize before. But what tends to happen as people start to correlate, maybe I feel personally shaky and jittery when my glucose is high. And so now if I've wear enough of the sensors. And I start to really pinpoint that feeling with the data. I now know when my glucose is high and I'm not wearing a sensor. So you don't have to wear it forever because you really enhance that mind body connection to know what it feels like to be in an optimal glucose range. You know what it feels like when it's high, when it's low, and then you can correlate those things. And it helps us listen to our internal signals better. Babies and children are really good at this. They're really good at listening to their internal signals. They're good at stopping eating when they're full. We lose that ability as adults due to a variety of factors that happen. But when we can enhance that mind-body connection, we get a better sense again of really listening to our body cues. And that also helps build that sustainable habits and more realistic changes when you can really tune in to how you are feeling.
0: I wanted to just expand on that a little bit, because one of the most important things I want listeners to get from this is the importance of stable glucose levels for both energy and weight management. Can you just take it a little bit deeper in those areas?
1: Absolutely. So with energy, and this is one of the biggest benefits because everybody wants to feel better and have better energy. And so if you think about what is metabolic health, what is metabolism, it's essentially all of the processes to turn food into energy and either turn that into energy that we use right away, turn it into a stored form of energy, then tap into that stored form of energy to use it when we need it. So metabolic health is essentially all of these processes to process energy. So just like a car, if we have a high performing car, but we don't take care of it, we don't ever give it an oil change. We don't ever switch out the brakes. We are putting the wrong fuel inside of it. It doesn't run well. So that's exactly what we can think of with our metabolic health. We have this system built that is incredibly complex and beautiful and impressive, But if we're feeding it the wrong fuel, um, if we're never giving it rest and repair, if we're giving it all of the wrong inputs, then it just doesn't function as well. And then this typically first presents as poor energy levels, fluctuating energy levels, that feeling like I was mentioning of kind of brain fog, not at your sharpest, best cognitive capacity either. And this is because when our glucose levels are fluctuating all over the place, that's essentially that fuel system, that energy system directly. So many people will see what's called reactive hypoglycemia after eating something kind of sugary, maybe a juice that has a bunch of... Extra sweetener in it. And what we see is that big glucose spike. And then your body tries to correct it, but it overcorrects. And then we see this big glucose dip afterwards. And this is like a classic energy roller coaster where you get jittery and then you crash and you feel tired and you feel hangry and you need to take a nap and things are just fluctuating. So when we can get stable glucose levels, and it doesn't have to be flat. It doesn't have to be no glucose movement at all. But when they're relatively stable, we feel that even energy level. And then that helps us across the board with the cognitive function, the focus, the attention. Because our brain, even though it's a very small organ compared to some of our other organ systems, it uses 20% of our energy and it primarily uses glucose as its main energy source. So when we have these fluctuating glucose levels, typically our brain and cognitive capacity is one of the first things to really experience the negative consequence of that. Energy levels is a big one. And that's typically the benefit people will feel right away because you can smooth those out by choosing different things to eat. And you're going to immediately feel that energy benefit where weight, of course, is a little bit more complicated. It takes a little bit more time. I always like to set the expectation that Anything that helps you lose 20 pounds in two weeks is probably not the right way to do it. Not healthy. Improving your metabolic health is also going to help increase um, or improve your weight as well, but it's going to be slow and consistent, which is exactly what we would expect. And the main reason for this, the main mechanism at play is that glucose and insulin work hand in hand. So essentially whenever glucose is rising, Our body releases insulin, and that's the hormone that then essentially takes care of that glucose, tells it where to go, what to do with it. It's orchestrating that whole energy system with glucose. And we know that when we have insulin resistance or when those insulin levels are constantly being stimulated, that it's putting the body into this kind of more storage mode. It's much harder to tap into your natural energy stores, use your own fat for fuel and kind of lose weight if that is your goal, if we're having insulin resistance and we're always having high glucose levels and high insulin levels. So the first main reason that it helps is it gives that body its functioning energy system again. So if you think about it like an operational model to a business, when things are like operationally efficient, everything's going exactly where it needs to be. We're doing things quickly, efficiently, and not a bunch of overlap or miscommunication. And you can really think about metabolic health in a similar way, where if we have poor metabolic health, so insulin resistance, then all of these hormones that are trying to cross talk across the body insulin's trying to talk to other hormones, It gets muddled, the communication is poor, so things don't work quite properly. We're giving the wrong signals, the body's doing the wrong action, and that's essentially what happens. So when we can fix that metabolic health, we just have a more efficient energy system where we're using the right energy when we need it. We're not excessively storing energy that doesn't need to be happening because we have those clear signals and we have clear processes happening essentially in the body.
0: Well, Kara, one of the things I wanted to follow on with what you just said is I've been doing intermittent fasting now for years. And ever since I've started, my energy levels are through the roof and I don't have that letdown typically in the afternoons anymore. Have you found any correlation between intermittent fasting and glucose?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So fasting can be a really powerful tool to stabilize those glucose levels. And it's also really powerful in enhancing what I call metabolic flexibility. So that ability to use different fuel sources, depending on what's appropriate. So again, uh, if we're thinking about kind of efficiency. Sometimes you want to use one energy system and sometimes you want to use another depending on what's going on. So your body might need to tap into glucose or maybe it needs to tap into fat. Maybe it needs to use stored energy or the immediate energy, but the ability to use the right energy source at the right time is what is considered metabolic flexibility. And fasting really improves our metabolic flexibility. So it enhances this ability for the body to use the right fuel system, which then is also going to lead to those more even glucose levels because there's the typical stereotype of sugar burners, which I really don't like that term because it's not technically correct. The 93% of Americans who are not metabolically healthy are typically only able to process glucose as the primary energy source. And so if they're not getting glucose or some form of food that they can turn into glucose every two to three hours, then they're getting those symptoms of anger. Then their body doesn't know how to process the stored fat. It doesn't know how to process other energy systems that can keep them going and feeling stable in between food that they're eating. And so what we're trying to do is be able to use all types of fuel and fasting helps teach our body how to do that and really stabilize those energy levels. So it's a great tool, especially if people are really trying to get Um, their metabolic health in that good working order. It's a lot easier for people to do intermittent fasting typically than some other strategies that are maybe harder to implement, like the actual food choices, which is important too. But intermittent fasting can be a really good place to start for most people.
0: Okay. Thank you for answering that. And Kara, we've talked a lot about glucose. I also wanted to talk about insulin. And I've heard you use the analogy, the boy who cries wolf, In describing insulin can you explain this concept and its implications for our health
1: as we mentioned insulin is a hormone and when glucose rises insulin rises and the reason that insulin is so important and that you probably have heard people talk about insulin and insulin resistance and all different platforms is because insulin does a lot for our body. So it's essentially telling, especially our glucose, but not just glucose, it's telling it what to do when we have higher glucose levels. So either to take it up, take that energy up and use it right away. So fueling some sort of energy need or put it into glycogen, which is our glucose storage form, or turn it into fat to be stored or synthesize DNA or proteins, et cetera. It's really important. And whenever we have insulin resistance, all of those functions don't work as well. So we're going to see that downstream effect on every basically energy source, not just glucose, but also lipids, fats, proteins, DNA, et cetera. And so many people talk about how important insulin resistance is to avoid, but to understand what's happening there. I think the boy who cried wolf is the best analogy So really what we're seeing first is that our body remains sensitive to the effects of insulin. So insulin sensitivity is another term you might hear, but essentially that means when the body releases insulin, our cells know what that signal means and they do what they're supposed to do. So the first thing, deviation from normal that happens is that we have to have higher insulin levels to have that same effect. So it's like at first the boy who cries wolf, you say your message, cry for help. And everyone responds. We're like, okay, yes. Like we will do what you are wanting us to do. You're screaming. We'll take care of it. It's the same thing. When our body releases insulin, our cells are like, great. Yep. We'll turn this into lipids. We'll make some proteins. We'll do what we need to do. But if we're constantly stimulating insulin, the first thing that happens is we get high insulin levels. And so we start crying wolf a lot. And eventually everyone's, we're not listening to this anymore. We're not taking this signal seriously. And so then that second thing that happens is that insulin sensitivity decreases. So our cells aren't responding to the message as well. And so those two things coupled together, high insulin levels, but low sensitivity to that insulin signal are when we have this mismatch. So that's why it can be confusing. It's like our body isn't responding to insulin, but our insulin levels are high. And that's a clear signal for metabolic dysfunction because the body doesn't know how to process this hormone anymore and it was trying to compensate by doing more and more until eventually it wasn't working at all
0: well thank you for that backdrop and i was hoping we could talk about a few things that help combat these elevated levels of both glucose and insulin and the first one i wanted to ask you about is what type of exercise proves most effective
1: Yeah. And I'll give the cheesy answer that any exercise is better than no exercise. If you're starting at zero, anything you like to do, or you think you'd be able to be consistent with is better than nothing. And then in an ideal world, we have a combination of both strength training and some aerobic exercise as well. If we're really going to make sure we don't neglect something in particular, I am a huge proponent of strength training and building up your lean body mass. For many reasons, but especially glucose control and metabolic health, our skeletal muscle are our largest sink for glucose to go either as a stored energy form or just to get picked up to be used for energy. So the more muscle mass we have, the more room we have for that incoming glucose to go. So it's essentially like a investment portfolio, so to speak for our body. It's giving us that extra sense of security that our metabolic health will be good when we have lots of lean body mass. So really emphasize strength training, especially for women, because it can tends to get deprioritized in their workout routine. But aerobic exercise, especially what's called zone two, so that steady state cardio, is really helpful in improving our mitochondrial health. And that is the energy epicenter within our cells. So, the stronger our mitochondria are and the better health that our mitochondria are in, then that's also going to have a ripple effect in that energy processing system and our metabolic health overall. So, both are really helpful, but the most important thing is consistency try not to skip more than two days in a row. There is a really interesting study that showed very fit people who took one week off and you can see a statistically significant decrease in their insulin sensitivity from taking that week off. So really the goal is to be consistent, try to do something every day, whether it's just walking, stretching, yoga, something is better than nothing.
0: Another exercise that I've heard helps with this is doing spin classes. And I just read more about that in the men's health magazine. I think it was last month.
1: Yeah. And that's really to help that mitochondria function as well. So that aerobic capacity, especially if you're doing it for longer, cyclists tend to have basically the healthiest mitochondria out there. They're impressive specimens, but it really helps to increase our body's ability to be sensitive to that effect of insulin, which means the more sensitive we are to insulin, the less our body needs to produce in order to have the same effect. So increasing that insulin sensitivity through all types of exercise can really help to minimize the amount of insulin that we need in our system.
0: Okay. And are there any specific supplements you found that are effective in helping mitigating these higher glucose levels?
1: So with supplements, again, I always caveat that supplements are supplemental. So make sure that you're really thinking about kind of the fundamentals first, but the most effective supplement that we've seen is berberine. That one seems to work pretty consistently with almost everyone we work with and very low risk, low consequences. Typically this is taken twice a day with meals and it's improving It actually has very similar mechanisms as metformin. If people have heard of that as an oral medication for diabetes, some people take it more for longevity benefits as well, but berberine seems to have similar mechanisms and work quite well at increasing our stabilizing glucose levels. The other thing that works fairly well, that's a supplement, but is apple cider vinegar and taking just a shot of this before meals or diluting it in some water. I'll dilute it in like sparkling water. And that just tastes like a sparkling water beverage to me. And that helps in that acute moment, really improve glucose levels. If you eat it right before a meal. So apple cider vinegar works really well as well.
0: I did want to ask you a couple questions about diet. Sure. According to some NIH studies that i've read there are potential benefits of reducing dietary fat as opposed to cutting carbs for reducing your overall body fat how can we interpret and apply these findings in practical terms
1: there are many diet wars out there of which macronutrient solution is best do we want to go low carb do we want to go high carb low fat high fat what i have found is that there are many things that work well for people. And there is a lot of bio individuality. So when it comes to nutrition, my recommendation is master the basics and then be very flexible, malleable and empirical to then see what works for you. So when it comes to mastering the basics, I recommend really prioritizing thinking about how processed your food is. So really dialing in on whole foods, minimal processing, I recommend pretty much everybody prioritize protein. So really trying to get about close to a gram of protein per body pound. So this is a lot of protein for some people. I think most people are under eating and then getting adequate nutrients. So getting a diversity of nutrients from both animal sources and plant sources getting a variety of micronutrients, macronutrients there. And then when it comes to the war of carbohydrates versus fat, there is research that shows high fat diet can cause insulin resistance. There is research that shows a high carb diet can cause insulin resistance. And what I have found is that for many people, they feel better on one or the other, and both can work. If you have a nutrient dense diet that doesn't have a lot of processed food, that's getting lots of nutrients in it and you're not overeating. So I think a really important key here is that energy balance still does matter at the end of the day. And for some people, a low-carbohydrate diet that's higher in fat really helps them feel satiated. I find that's true for most people is that lower-carbohydrate tends to work better in that world. But for some people, they feel really good when it's a little bit lower-fat and a little bit higher-carbohydrate. So I don't think it's clear. And those research studies, usually when you dig in deeply into the details, you typically see, I don't know this specific one, but you typically see exactly that in the results. So you might see that the average was that high fat was worse overall, but then if you look at each individual in the study, you'll typically see huge deviations. So you'll see that a fourth of the study participants had much better outcomes on lower fat versus higher fat. And then you'll see maybe a fourth had the exact opposite, but then the average um result ended up skewing one way or another but you'll see this big distribution in results so in my opinion there's no one size fits all with macronutrients
0: the last thing i wanted to touch on was detoxification every single day i drink a detox drink that i make up that has a number of drops that i use because i'm constantly concerned about pollen and liver my lungs etc and i do this through about an eight hour window. So I sip on the drink throughout the day. And I wanted to ask you, these processes have gained attention in recent years. Have you seen any science-based approaches to enhancing our body's natural detox mechanisms through dietary choices and through some of the detox products that are out there?
1: It's a great question. And as we talked about before, there are toxins everywhere. (laughs) We're never going to be able to completely remove them from our life. And so enhancing our body's natural ability to detoxify is part of the equation. I'm always like minimize the exposure to toxins as much as you can, and then try to maximize that detoxification. When it comes to briefly from the nutrition perspective of minimizing I really recommend many people are like, is it worth buying organic for everything? Cost does play a role in many people's lives. If you can't afford it, I would say lean towards the side of just choosing organic whenever possible. But if you are trying to make trade-off decisions there, EWG puts out a dirty dozen guide, and these are the produce items that are most susceptible to some of those contaminants to some of the chemicals so choosing organic for everything on that dirty dozen list is going to be the biggest bang for your buck there so a lot of this is like greens berries or something with a thick outer layer like a banana or an avocado it's probably less important because a lot of those contaminants aren't penetrating but choosing the organic whenever possible And then high quality water, drinking a lot of water. I really recommend at a minimum, I'm curious what you put in yours, but at a minimum, fresh lemon in your water is also helping to enhance some of that ability to detoxify naturally, but making sure you have quality water and you're drinking a lot of it, um, because By going to the bathroom and then also sweating are two ways that we can get rid of some of these toxins naturally. And so we want to make sure that we're doing both of those things regularly. So this is why sauna can potentially be very helpful as well. And then this is also why fiber can potentially be very helpful for helping detoxify, um, removing some of these chemicals from your body, so to speak. Some people are more sensitive to the effects of fiber and needs to be personalized If you're having gut disturbances to that, then there are also natural detoxifying plants to include in your rotation and your daily meals as much as possible. A lot of these are those cruciferous, cruciferous vegetables that we talked about. Things like cabbage, broccoli, radishes, kale, all of these. Arugula is actually not a green; It is a cruciferous. So these have some natural detoxifying properties and then things like lemon, Garlic and curcumin and rosemary and a bunch of other fresh herbs are good things to consider in your rotation as well that have some of these natural detoxifying effects and help support the body's innate ability to detoxify.
0: Yeah, and curcumin is great for anti inflammatory as well, which is another reason I take it daily. Well, I wanted to end on perhaps you sharing an example of someone who has used your product at NutriSense. Has led to improved either cognitive function or mental clarity for that individual?
1: Yeah, we see so many amazing success stories. We have internal testimonials so that. Everybody in our company is getting to see the outcomes every day. We did have somebody recently who came back. They used the sensors for about six months and worked with our dietitians. We provide dietitian support as well to help make sense of it, have someone to talk to, have that accountability. And they came back that they recently... They've had controlled type two diabetes for almost 20 years where their A1C was in a controlled level. They've been on oral medications for it, but they never felt that good. And they had a parent pass away recently from diabetes complications. That was a motivator that they wanted in order to see if they could do something better than just well-controlled with medication and some basic lifestyle changes. So they came back to us and I believe their original A1C was like 7.5% and it was down to 5.6%, which is no longer even in the pre-diabetic range. And this was the first time they'd seen an A1C in this level for many years. And of course that's exciting because they no longer have to take the medications. They no longer have as many risk factors associated with having that condition. But one of the main things that they talked about was how they feel better day to day. It's that idea of normal is normal. And now they have a new normal that they didn't even know was possible to feel that way. And a lot of that was related to the ability to not even need as much caffeine before it was, I think they were drinking five diet Cokes a day and three um, coffee drinks just to keep functioning. And now they've completely removed that because they just feel energized naturally. So stories like that are super exciting where People are making life-changing results based off of this data and the support and then the information that they're getting about their bodies.
0: Okay. And then Kara, my last question would be, if someone wants to learn more about you and NutriSense, where is the best place for them to go?
1: So for me, you can follow me on Instagram at Kara Collier one. I'm putting out all kinds of information related to health and wellness and just living your best life in general. So not always specifically just nutrition. And then you can follow NutriSense at NutriSense.io where we're always posting CGM experiments, insights that people are finding, research studies. And then if you want to try the sensors yourself, you just go to our website, NutriSense.io fill out a quick health questionnaire and we take care of everything else for you. So we'll ship the devices to your door. We take care of any sort of prescription process that needs to be done. A lot of people aren't sure if they need to go to their doctor, but you don't need to do anything except for sign up on the website.
0: Well, Kara, thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to have you on.
1: Yeah, it was a blast. Thank you.
0: I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Kara Collier, and I wanted to thank Kara for the privilege and honor of appearing today on PassionStruck. Links to all things Kara will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Videos are on YouTube at both John R. Miles and Passion Struck clips. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. Please consider supporting those who support the show. I have some exciting news that my brand new book, Passion Struck, 12 Powerful Principles to Unlock Your Purpose and Ignite Your Most Intentional Life is now available for pre-order. You can find it on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or wherever you buy books. Links will also be in the show notes. You can find me at John R. Miles on all the social platforms. Platforms, you can sign up for my LinkedIn newsletter, which is titled Work Intentionally, or you can sign up for my regular newsletter titled Live Intentionally, passionstruck.com or Miles.com. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Start podcast interview that I did with Thomas Coran, a distinguished professor at the London School of Economics and the acclaimed author of the groundbreaking book, The Perfection Trap. In our interview, we delve into the perilous journey, perfectionism. Perfectionism can come in many different ways. Flavours And actually, that's the most interesting thing about perfectionism. There's no real one size fits all. So one perfectionistic person is not the same as another because they will have different emphasis. Some people will be way more personally invested in their perfectionism. So that's to say they have an intense desire to be perfect. And that need comes from within. And they set excessively high goals themselves. They're quintessential overstrivers. And when they haven't met those goals, it can be very harshly self-critical. So this is what's called a self-oriented perfectionist the a person. the comes from within the fee for the show is that you share it with family or friends when you find something useful or interesting if you know someone who's interested in metabolic health then definitely share today's episode with them the greatest compliment that you can give us is to share the show with those that you love and care about in the meantime do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen to now until next time go out there and become passion struck